0: Hi, I'm Bruce Webb. You're listening to Push to Talk's Helicopter Safety Enhancement Miniseries. In this collaboration with the U.S. Helicopter Safety Team, we're talking about four different safety enhancements over four consecutive weeks. Joining me is Chris Bauer, a former military aviator and co-chair of the U.S. HST. In this third episode, Chris and I will take a look at HSE-124, Understanding Helicopter Aerodynamics. For more information and for a full list of helicopter safety enhancements, please visit ushst.org forward slash h-se. Welcome back, Chris. I uh, am excited to see you again. Today, we're going to tackle our third HSE. It's uh, 124, which is improving pilots understanding of basic helicopter aerodynamics some outreach stuff some changing of the source material etc i have to imagine a lot of listeners are like well what do you mean don't pilots already understand aerodynamics well and why do we need to change the material what what have been the changes so you've got a great deal of experience on all sorts of aircraft but specific to helicopters when you and i learned to fly we had the rotorcraft flying handbook. And then, of course, it modified. It was changed to the helicopter flying handbook. And now we're on revision B or the second revision. But from your perspective, why is it necessary for us to refocus or focus greater attention on certain aerodynamic principles?
1: Well, first of all, thanks, Bruce, for having me back. And I'm really uh, excited, as excited as anybody could be, to talk about aerodynamics and just to say that uh, i hope there's no quiz or test <laughs> at the end of this podcast <laughs> me too it's not one of the more sexy subjects that pilots have to learn and and that's probably the statement right there that they have to learn but do you want to know you know do you want to understand when you're sitting in the aircraft and you're manipulating the controls why the aircraft responds the way it does. And I think, you know, we're going back to the earlier days of like second and third generation helicopters. You were the flight control computer, didn't have one. Right. So you want to talk about, you know, like translating tendency. You pick the aircraft up to a hover and you had to compensate with the cyclic to keep the aircraft from drifting. Mm-hmm. Now there's a computer. computer. Absolutely. Computer says, nah, you don't need to drift. I can take care of that for you. I got that. You know, I can give you uh, yaw and I can give you heading control. In some helicopters, you can pull on the collective and keep your feet almost on the floor because the helicopter is not going to yaw adversely in response to it. Right. I find the fact that human beings were actually able to figure all this stuff out and put it together in a way that we we as pilots could learn how to fly the aircraft and then retain this knowledge. So when you look at the the... The aerodynamics. First thing I would say is you're always a student of aerodynamics. You'll get one day in the aircraft and the light comes on. You're like, you know, I've been flying a helicopter for five years, let's say. And I've read about it, but it just happened to me. Maybe that's settling with power. And then, right, there's a big discussion. If you learn to fly in the Army, you learn to fly in the Navy, you learn to fly in the Air Force. I was in all three. I would listen to this wardroom discussion about settling with power and power settling. Yep. So what is it? You know, is it when you first, enc- first time I encountered settling with power was in the army in a formation going into an LZ and it happened that quick. And fortunately, I guess I had a good night's sleep and I was well hydrated. The brain said, hey, Chris, you're in settling with power. Mm-hmm. Do something. Mm-hmm. And that something was to reduce the collective, push the nose forward, break out of the pack and get the aircraft flying safely. Right, And it happened quickly and we exited quickly. Yes. And I made a note to myself, don't do that again.
0: <laughs> right. Well, that's an important part of what did change in the helicopter flying handbook. We look at what we, many of us, and I was not in the military, but I was trained, I was told that that is settling with power. Of course, now we'd make every effort not to use that. We say vortex, ring, state, so that we don't confuse settling with power with insufficient power or power settling. There's a difference. If I am at an altitude where the aircraft is incapable of producing sufficient lift to hover, that's to say out of ground effect, the ship will descend. That does not mean it's an aerodynamic phenomenon called vortex, which is causing the descent. I simply have insufficient power. Where vortex ring is actually an aerodynamic phenomenon, Where the vortices at the tip of the rotor, you know, surrounding the rotor system become quite large. We start re ingesting them. Mm. And then we basically descend on our own downwash up to, you know, I hope I never experienced 6,000 feet a minute, but up to what has been written anyway, 6,000 feet a minute, uh, which is pretty sporty on the way down. And considering uh,
1: that most of us don't fly at 6,000 feet.
0: Exactly. And even if we did, imagine going from 6,000 feet to the dirt. In, in a minute. In a minute. The authorities in conjunction, kind of like the U.S. helicopter safety team, they have spent their efforts to modify the source material to better...
1: Distill and digest it. That's right. For human beings. And and with that, I will plug the U.S. helicopter safety team, HSE-127A. You don't need to know the number of it. You just need to know if you go into a search engine and type U.S. helicopter safety team or USHST and HSE for helicopter safety.
0: Yep, enhancement, right, HSE.
1: You will go to the, they'll take you to the website and you can click on any one of these HSEs and get down into granular detail what a whole trove of experts have taken to distill to help you better understand it. Because you can get in trouble very quickly when you put the aircraft into an aerodynamic situation that is either beyond its capabilities or beyond yours or both. Or, and that'll happen with the main rotor and it'll happen with the tail rotor.
0: Right. There are a lot of aerodynamic principles, which we have, we have a refined understanding of them. And as you said, we now have a more, a more palatable way to explain them and for people to discuss them without confusion. Vortex ring and settling with power are the ob- is an obvious one, Um,
1: loss of tail rotor effectiveness, effectiveness LTE, knowing where your winds are coming from. If you guys are out there and you're doing, and and I say guys collectively, I mean girls too. If you're out there and you're doing a, like but I was in customs, we would do a surveillance and we're watching something that isn't moving. So really I can't be moving. (laughs) Right. So I got to point the nose into the wind. Got to know where the wind is coming from. If you put the wind at your right rear quarter, You're setting yourself up and the helicopter will talk to you. It's going to start kicking. You'll feel these yaw kicks and they're not pleasant and they, they don't seem to respond well to the inputs you're giving them. So if you're, if you're in that envelope, get out of that envelope. The helicopter will love, love, love um when you point the nose to the wind right. and you'll look at your torque you're like oh i don't need as much torque that way mm-hmm. so don't don't put yourself in a situation with the aircraft sideways and the same thing goes when you run out of insufficient power because you're heavy I, i'm i'm not embarrassed to say at least in my career where i've had to like drag the skid tubes on the ground to get, shake the aircraft Into ETL to get it off because we were heavy or doing running takeoffs in the helicopter to get it off the ground because we were heavy. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of ops normal. I know uh, when I was in the Army, particularly in the Cobra community in the summertime, they would drag those skid tubes uh, trying to get those aircraft up up and in the air. Right. But— those guys knew enough not to say, oh, I'm going to go into an out-of-ground effect hover right now because they wouldn't have had the power to do that. Right. Yeah. So Bird you're going to droop the rotor. a
0: fuel and it's a different ship.
1: So if you know what you're going to be doing, you know, you can plan accordingly. Another one is dynamic rollover. This one happens periodically. Same thing. I was in Korea on the DMZ. I was a scout pilot. Uh, aircraft, I was going to fly my boss, the CO, you know, like a first light flight, the skid tubes were frozen into the rice paddy and the mechanics had helped out and we were trying to use our entrenching tools to uh, chip away at the skid tubes because they would freeze overnight. As uh, luck have it, when I went to pick up to a hover, one skid tube broke free and the other one didn't and the aircraft started rolling over to the right. Again, I got lucky. I just remembered... What I was supposed to do? Put
0: that collective down. Push
1: the push the collective down, and it went right back. And and when I did that, it broke <laughs> broke the other skid of tube free. So then we could go flying. But when it happens, it'll happen quickly, and you hope that if you studied the stuff and you remember it, that you'll get to apply right. it. But dynamic rollover can happen when weight becomes equal to thrust, and one skid tube or a wheel, but I'll say mm-hmm. skid tube, um, acts as a pivot point right. on the ground. Absolutely. When we go out and we inspect heliports and we build instrument approaches to them, we look at the heliport surface. And I don't know if you know this, but you can't have anything greater than two inches off the surface of the heliport.
0: I guess I didn't know that.
1: And the reason being is the FAA would see that in a low visibility environment that you could, um, in hovering...
0: Strike it and roll. There you go. Which does bring up a great point. Remember when we learned to fly... In the 20th century, that's how we denoted a helicopter, at least the training area where I learned to fly to DuPage County Airport in West Chicago, Illinois, the east panel was eight car tires. It was four car tires forming a, a square, if you will, a box, you know, one on each corner with a tire on top of, so it's two tires, on one on top of each other, times four, with some rebar driven through them into the ground. So the helicopter training area was in fact obstacles, which uh, I never hit one and roll over. But, you know, it is fascinating. You would never do that on an airport, right? You wouldn't on a runway. You wouldn't say, well, let's put these obstacles on the runway and make sure the pilots can go around them. But that's what we do with the helicopter community. So it's fascinating to me that today we now have the intelligence, the knowledge to say no more than
1: two inches. Well, we do. If you wanted to have a perceived visual- sure. Absolutely. For an IFR. But oftentimes what I find at heliports, which we could have a whole other podcast yes. about safety at the heliport. You'll find that they'll put up all kinds of floodlights and other um, accoutrements. That are obstacles. <laughs> some landscape engineer comes in and says, you know, to make this heliport beautiful, we need to put some big hedges and a fence around it. So the as you peel back layers of the onion of what you have in these different obstacles, at night, in lower visibility um you may not see it let's say you got some some fog on the windscreen mm-hmm. you know where it's not defogging completely you got a little bit on this window and you're looking you're sliding left bang you could you could right. clip one of these
0: to that point, it's a great segue into, in the Helicopter Flying Handbook, the modifications have added things like aeronautical decision-making. How do you do a high reconnaissance? How do you do a low reconnaissance how the, on the way in? How do you assess the suitability of the area? Quite honestly, in the past, guidance really just said, well, just be reasonable, be smart, you know, do what you know you should do. But as you know, common sense or reasonableness is not necessarily uniform across humanity.
1: You know, a friend of mine, a colleague in the in the FAA that I work with, flew heavies in the Air Force, and he was telling me about his first helicopter flight. And at one point, he was like, so where are we landing in all of that? <laughs> I just see a bunch of ops, you know, trees, power lines. Oh, the, the pad's right there. So it's a different environment. I remember my first landing at East 60th Street Heliport in Manhattan, which was crazy, crazy. You know, you can turn that into a sense of normalcy if you train for it and know what the risks are. So you had the 59th Street Bridge. You had this tram cable line that ran parallel to it, which was kind of invisible a little bit, the cables. Uh, And then you had the island there on final with the smokestacks and the buildings. And then 60th Street itself was about, it was a confined area with Mm -hmm. a big concrete wall.
0: Right so that you could re-ingest that downwash that hits the wall and regenerates and comes back through your rotor system and causes all sorts of handling problems.
1: And you had parking positions with other helicopters with their rotors turning. So you would shoot your approach over a running helicopter and then maneuver backwards into a, a spot and land. Right. So if you train for that, that's great. But I guess where I'm going is in a perfect world, you could do a high recon, a low recon. You could you know, call ahead have lunch ready for you when you get there. But as a pilot, you're going to have to do things probably a bit more tactically and decide, man, maybe I don't even want to land there. Mm -hmm. Maybe this just is not a good spot. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I can't determine what's what's underneath the aircraft. Or I could land there, but I won't have enough power. This is my own experience where I looked at a place and somebody told me, oh, you can land there. And I looked at it and said, no, I can't. It's it's, With the wind, my weight, and the amount of thrust power it's going to require for me to get into that little hole. And then you want me to pick somebody up. Well, how much do they weigh? How much do I weigh? How much fuel do I have on board? And when you go, as you know, Bruce, when you go down into these holes, there's no wind. Mm -hmm. So the the power you had going into the hole isn't going to be the same power you have coming out of the
0: hole. Yeah, when we look at Category A stuff, and we're that's far afield from what we're talking about today, but when you look at Category A, you can only take half the credit for wind, and that's only if you know you do have wind at the surface. But the reason you only take half the credit is because we know it's not reliable. It's not reliable. And to your point, there are places when you understand aerodynamics and performance. You know, I've been asked to land places where I could physically land the machine, but I can't get out of there with the people I landed with. Right. I mean, so then, you know, you have to explain to people, well, listen, I can land there and I can reposition the ship to a place two miles distant. And, you know, I can either come back and take half the people out, you know, to this safer place and do that twice, or I'll send a car to get you. But I can't get out of that place because I don't have the performance. And again, back to this HSE and how we, you know, we're, we're trying to, be more complete in our description so pilots can understand better, so they can make better decisions. Again, we now have decision-making in there. We also have VFR flight into IMC conditions. We'll talk about that. I think that will be our last HSC we'll talk about uh, uh, next week. The FAA has done a good job in concert with industry to really modify the book, modify the information we now give to pilots to be more complete and more useful. And I do think it is improved safety. It certainly improved my knowledge and understanding about things. LTE being one, you know, unanticipated yaw. So not LTE, but, you know, just simply not realizing to your point when you're in a downwind condition or when you're working very hard, and you're dancing on those pedals, be proactive. Place yourself in a different position. Don't continue to struggle with that. Recognize and choose a different solution. The book has done a good job. I think guidance, I shouldn't just say the book, guidance is improving. There are a lot of organizations, the U.S. Helicopter Safety Team being one of them, spends a lot of time trying to improve our understanding. And to your point, you know, you can, you can type in the HSEs or, or U.S. Helicopter Safety Team. The actual website is U.S. Helicopter Safety Team or USHST.org. But there's plenty of information there. The FAA FAST team does such a great job now disseminating information. I don't remember if we talked about it last episode when we talked about the Rotocraft Collective and all the great work they're doing trying yes. to disseminate information. I know, I know you work on that. You know, every week I, I see you on the call.
1: And, and the other thing is I, believe it or not, I sign up for uh, Pilots and Coffee on Saturdays. There's the fast safety team has something on Tuesday nights. And if I'm not flying, I'll, I'll, I'll listen in even if I'm going out to walk the dog or... You can never learn enough about this, Bruce. And and, and and I know you know that, so it's really directed to you. But, you know, I applaud anyone who's listening to this podcast we're not trying to teach you helicopter aerodynamics. What we're trying to do is inspire you to think and to explore and learn. I will never suggest you should drag your skid tubes. Nobody's shooting at you. Great. Right. You know? right. Or, you know, I've been in a situation where I couldn't get everybody out. So I did sort of what you did. I pulled, I pulled out what I could and I put them on a pinnacle and I went back in and got the other ones sure. and went there and picked up the rest and we went on because I didn't have enough power to get out of the hole. Think about it. You know, you don't have to give up. Just don't put yourself in a situation where you're going to hurt yourself. And that's
0: understanding aerodynamics. You may even be able to hover with the load that you have. That doesn't mean you can get out of the spot, because if you cannot obtain translational lift, if you're at max power and you're in a hover hole and you can't get translational lift, as soon as you pull pitch and go out of ground effect, you're going to settle back down into ground effect. We have to understand aerodynamics, be able to calculate performance of the aircraft.
1: and some other environmental factors. I know this sounds really silly, but if you're in a higher elevation, you're not going to have the same performance that you will at sea level. If you're in the wintertime, the aircraft's going to have a lot more performance. Think about that when you're going in someplace, and maybe the last time you were there, the, the air was colder in the summertime. It's, it's, it's so bad that there's certain times of the day, it just doesn't make sense sometimes to go into a, a high-altitude airport because the density altitude is really high. Mm-hmm. Another one, we were flying uh, on R-66 um, from Houston up to New York, and we spent the night in uh, Morgantown, West Virginia. When we came out the next morning the helicopter was a popsicle freezing
0: rain that night
1: no just the dew overnight oh, the dew. I'm it, sorry. it yeah, froze okay. yeah. and there was ice yeah you know on the rotor blades let alone on the on the canopy my point is that don't overlook that little bit of ice frost that is on an airfoil no different than a wing on an airplane so when you take off you go to pull pitch if that stuff is stuck on there Aerodynamically, that airfoil—you're—you're you're now a test pilot. Yep, because you're testing an airfoil that nobody's tried out before right. with whatever contamination is on it. And my wife looked at me and she said, "What are you going to do?" I said, "I got this. I was in Korea, so I—you know—got a rope, climbed up there, and I cleaned all the the contamination and, and ice off of there, and mm-hmm. got microfiber cloth and get it all off the the blades so right. it's clean, and right. then also so I could see out the windows, right. My point is, don't don't cut corners. Well, I'll clean half the bubble and not the other half. It'll let it burn off in flight or whatever. I've even had this problem with a uh, with aircraft where I, I went in someplace to pick up a a seven fifty seven and they didn't have a de icing truck and we literally had to tow the airplane out into the sun and wait,
0: let it melt. All right. Well, again, and that's what we're 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 trying to do through honestly through this podcast through the work that we do to advocate for education. And sometimes the education is formal. It's in a book. And sometimes the education is common sense, understanding physics and not being in a hurry, you know, or towing the ship back and putting it in a hangar. I mean, there's a lot of things to do, but what you can't do in those cases is just go fly. Unfortunately, people do attempt it. And to your point, they're test pilots. That oftentimes goes very poorly. Of course, then People will say, well, I knew that pilot, he, he or she would never make such a, an egregious mistake. But all humans make mistakes, and all humans are capable of doing something that we, we couldn't for, foretell through previous behavior. So I think the FAA has done an admirable job, and not just the FAA, EASA, you know, all the authorities have spent a fair bit of effort trying to help us aviators understand as well as possible, the aerodynamics of the vehicles. And more importantly, perhaps, or as importantly, you know, how to make a good decision, you know, not just understanding frost or ice, but what did, what to do about it. What What are your decisions? And I, I, I have to give them credit. I think it's easy to criticize. It's easy to read a book and say, well, I would have said this, or I would have said that. Okay. Write your own book and you'll see it's more difficult than it looks.
1: And, and another thing too, if you're in doubt and you just don't know what what you want to do, call somebody. Absolutely. Yeah. And say, here's my situation. This is what I'm looking at. What what would, you know, what would you do in this situation? You know, we're talking about ice on the blade, talk about ice that could obscure your vision. Mm -hmm. You can have the same thing with those skid tubes again.
0: I've had people advocate to me. I had someone tell me one time, they said, hey, just go get some boiling water and pour it on, you know, the blades or on the aircraft. I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, yeah, it may melt off whatever's on there right now. It also may damage the composite underneath or cause something to imagine the shock to the system to an uneducated person or a person that was, I mean this term, strictly speaking, ignorant. They don't understand. They're not dumb, but they're ignorant of that. But that's what they thought would be reasonable. Heat up some hot water and throw it on the ship.
1: I'm like or with snow I've heard though well if once you start the rotors it'll blow it all yeah, it'll right. blow it all off.
0: <laughs> well, so it may or it may not but you can't tell. So yeah, you're going to have to you can start it up, run it for 10 minutes and shut it back down, but even that, you know, is there ice or snow in the plenum in the intake plenum somewhere that you haven't identified? Is it going to
1: interfere with the flight controls?
0: That's right. I mean, there's a million again, uh there's some some pretty unfortunate incidents and accidents have happened where yeah, people have taken off and attempted to fly when there was snow in the intake plenum and then it collapses down into that compressor or impeller and causes a flame out. It goes back to decision-making, goes back to professionalism that we talked on week one. This is one that I think especially uh, listeners should just. Go to the site, take a look at the guidance material. There's lots of guidance material. Read it, try to understand it. If you have comments or you have corrections or you have things to add to it, participate. Join the U.S. Helicopter Safety Team. You know, join VAST. You know, join these organizations and help improve our industry. There's plenty of opportunities for everybody to join.
1: Indeed, we are looking for new people, new ideas, It doesn't matter if you're new to helicopters, if you've been in helicopters, if you're coming back to helicopters, if you have an interest in safety and helping others, we want to hear from you. Perfect.
0: I agree. We're at our clearance limit. I would like to thank you again, Chris. Fantastic guest. I think I'll see you next week. We're going to do our final one next week.
1: Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for letting me stop by and visit with you.
0: Thank you. Thanks for being here. Until next time, resume own navigation. The information provided during this podcast, Push to Talk with Bruce Webb, is made available for general information and educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed do not necessarily represent those of Airbus Helicopters, Inc. or its affiliates.